Well, good morning. As was mentioned earlier, today we're beginning a new series related to the last week of Jesus' life before he was arrested, crucified, buried, and raised again from the dead. A lot happened during that week. And the starting point for our story that we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks is an event that's called Palm Sunday. Uh, I find Palm Sunday, this particular event, to be rather unusual or interesting for this reason. Jesus always kept such a low profile in a sense. He was always so meek, he was always so humble. Even though Jesus, when he performed his miracles or did teaching, he always, there were you know thousands, sometimes even tens of thousands of people gathered. Jesus was never into crowds. I mean, he wasn't about the crowds. And he didn't do his miracles for the wow factor and things like that. And yet, when you get to this Palm Sunday event, it's like he, he just let everything go. He presents himself in a way that people are, are singing and saying his praises, and he accepts it from them. And, and there's just no hiding this, and the whole city of Jerusalem is just up in arms, like, what's going on here? And it was just such a big deal but to me, it just seems like it's just contrary to the way Jesus usually was. Again, he had crowds, places he went, but he, he wasn't so deliberate. But on this occasion, on this occasion, I believe that he was very, very deliberate. He wanted everybody to see, everybody to hear what was going on. And it raises the question, why? And I think part of the answer is that Jesus was setting into motion certain events that were going to culminate in his death. One thing I think we need to understand about Jesus is that he was not a victim in the sense that all these things just happened to him. No, Jesus chose this. Jesus laid down his life. It was not taken from him. And so these events are very purposeful. And so as Jesus stirs things up a little bit on this Palm Sunday type event, I think a big part of it is to get things rolling. But there's a little bit more to it than that. I believe on this occasion, Jesus was finally and clearly presenting himself as being the Messiah, the King, the one whose coming had been foretold throughout the Old Testament hundreds of times. He finally made it clear, that's who I am. That's what this is about. You see, up to this point, people speculated that maybe he is the Messiah. Sometimes they would even say, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus was always kind of cryptic, but all doubt is removed through this event, as you'll see in a minute. He owns it fully. And yet there's a little bit more to the story than meets the eye because I believe he was not just presenting himself as the Messiah and the king, but he was presenting himself in another way, as we'll see in a minute. He's presenting himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My takeaway this morning is this, that Jesus is the lion and the lamb. Now, I'll explain what I mean here in a minute, why I'm using even the term lion. But Jesus was coming on this day, what we call Palm Sunday, to present himself as the lion and the lamb. Why does it matter? It's essential that we relate to Jesus for who he really is. 
And the crowd in Jesus' day did not get it. They did not understand what he was about. And I think a lot of people in our day and age don't get it either. Just exactly who was this? What was he coming to do? What was the point he was trying to make? Now this story, the Palm Sunday story, is found in all four of the Gospels, which is is a little bit unusual. Very few stories are included in all the Gospels, but this was one, and I think God wanted to make sure we did not miss it. This event was critical. I'd like to read about the event beginning in Luke 19 and verse 29. We're gonna look at Luke's accounting of this event. We read, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you'll find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their robes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. Now let me stop for a moment and just talk about this part we've read so far. Jesus was on his way with his disciples to Jerusalem. At least three times a year, in the years that Jesus was doing ministry, and really leading up to that, uh, Jesus made his way to Jerusalem. He was required to do so. Every male of a certain age had to go three times a year. And so it was the occasion of this Passover event, this celebration of the Passover that Jesus and his close friends were making their way to Jerusalem. But they were going to stop on the way in a town called Bethany. Now, Bethany was a town in which he had three close friends who lived it was Mary and Martha and Lazarus. These are dear friends of his. And the town in which they lived or the house where they lived was really, really convenient for Jesus and his disciples. So often he stayed there. It was located about two miles from Jerusalem. It would take about an hour and a half to get there. And so you can just envision that Jesus is traveling along. He's heading to Jerusalem. They've been traveling for a while. They spend the night with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and then they go on their way to Jerusalem. But on this occasion, Jesus did something that was different. As they were approaching the town of Bethany, he, he picked a couple disciples, and he said, I want you to go in, and you're going to find a, a, a foal there, a small donkey, and I want you to untie it and bring it here. If someone asks you why you're doing it, just say the Lord needs it. And so the disciples went into the town and they found it exactly the way Jesus had described it. And they were even asked, why are you taking it? The Lord needs it. Now, there's been a lot of discussion as to whether or not Jesus just knew this like prophetically, like it was something he just knew. God revealed it to him, his father, or whether it was something he prearranged. I'd like to suggest this morning that I think he prearranged this. I think this is something he set up. I think he talked to the owner of the, the foal and the donkey. Actually, the other gospels indicate that there were two donkeys, a mother and the baby. And I think he talked to them ahead of time because there was no room to get this thing wrong. The donkey had 
to be there because of what was about to unfold. And so it was not something I don't think Jesus was taking for granted. I think he knew it was there. And when the disciples said that the Lord needs it, I think it's because they'd had a prior conversation. And so they let the donkey go. And so Jesus comes into town on this donkey. We continue the story in verse 36. As he was going along, they spread their robes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. The king who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they kept silent, the stones would cry out. He's receiving it. Jesus is, they're all saying, blessed is this king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're applying it to Jesus. And the religious leaders say, don't let him do that. Jesus said, this is the time for shouting. This is the occasion because something really wonderful is happening here which you guys have no clue about. But what was it about? Well, half the story is that Jesus was presenting himself as the Messiah, as the king, and I'll add, as the, the Lion of Judah. One of my thoughts here today is that Jesus, through this event, was claiming to be the Lion of Judah. Let me tie this together why I say this. Many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis. He wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, of course, in that movie or the book, the, the lion is, is a representation of Jesus. You say, where did that come from? This idea that, that the Messiah or Jesus should be a lion. Well, of course, the, the lion is the king of the jungle. But it's more than that. This relates to a prophecy that was made in the very first book of the Bible. The very first book of the Bible talks about some events that Jesus is starting to unfold here about being the Lion of Judah. It's found in Genesis 49, verses 1 and 10. Let me set the context. A man named Israel and his family had made their way to Egypt where they were to stay until they would all die and actually for hundreds of years. But you remember the story how Joseph, one of Israel's 12 sons had gone ahead of time or God had orchestrated events so that Joseph could take care of his family in the midst of a famine. And he called his father Israel, who was previously called Jacob, but God renamed him. He said, come, come to Egypt and I'll take care of you. And so Israel and the 12 boys and their wives and their kids all ended up living in Egypt. But just before Israel the man died, through the power of God, he made a prophecy concerning every one of his sons. And in verse 9 of Genesis 49, we read about the son Judah. Judah is a young lion. My son, you will return from the kill. He crouches. He lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes, and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. It's describing a scene in which a scepter, like in a ruling scepter, like in a kingdom, 
is going to rest with a descendant of Judah. And Isaiah is prophesying that this is going to continue until a certain guy shows up. It's worded between his feet, whose right it is come, and obedience to the people belongs to him. This is someone to whom everybody will have to obey. Now, of course, we recognize this as Jesus, but it's tying together the idea of a lion and a ruler. We fast forward our story some. Hundreds of years would pass, and God tapped a shepherd boy named David and said, I'm choosing you to be the next king of Israel. And this boy was from the family line of Judah. And God raised him up to be Israel's most beloved king, as you know, and he wrote several of the Psalms, and he was a great victorious ruler, like the lion who went out and came back victorious. That's what he was like. Before David died, though, God reiterated the promise he had made to Israel hundreds of years earlier. God said directly to David, one of your descendants is going to reign forever on the throne of Judah. Someone's going to sit on your throne. One of yours comes out of your flesh and blood. Someday is going to rule. Now, the entire Old Testament is about the people of Israel waiting for that person to show up, this individual who's going to be the lion of Judah, who's going to be a, a king. And then if we fast forward even some more, 520 years before Jesus was born, a prophet named Zechariah added a prophecy to the mix. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, we read, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was going to be a sign. The king is going to come in, but... He's going to come in in a unique way because usually kings came in on royal horses, but this one was going to come on a donkey. Why? Because he's coming to bring peace. Now, in Israel's history, a couple of the kings rode into town on a donkey that had never been ridden before. That's key because it had to be a donkey that was set apart for this purpose. A scholar by the name of R.H. Stein explains such an animal was qualified to perform a sacred task now, Jesus knew about this prophecy in Zechariah, and he's about to proclaim that he's the fulfillment of it. I am the king. I'm coming into the city. I am the descendant of David. I am the heir to the throne of Judah, the lion. All of these things are true about me, and he presents himself as this king. And the people got it. They got what he was saying. That's why the religious leaders were so mad because the people were actually proclaiming it. What were they proclaiming? We read, the crowd shouted, the king who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. That's what the crowd was shouting. The king who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. On this occasion, as pilgrims were coming in for the Passover, this was a verse that was said every year. 
comes from Psalm 118, but on this occasion, in this year, Jesus was claiming it for himself. I am that one. I am the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And he was announcing himself. And it appeared that all the people were thrilled to death, which makes it all the more puzzling when you read the next verse. In Luke 19, when we pick up the story, in Luke 19, 41, we read, as he approached and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. So Jesus is and his caravan are making their way along the Mount of Olives. There's a certain place in the Mount of, Ol Mount of Olives where you kind of turn a corner and the city comes into view. And as soon as the city came into view, it says Jesus wept. And the word that's used for wept here is not a silent weeping, it's a loud weeping. He's torn to pieces about this thing. He sees the city and he says, oh, if you knew what would bring you peace, I'm coming to you on a donkey. I'm coming to bring peace. If you'd only known it, but you didn't. He said, now it's hidden from your eyes. Now here's the mystery. It seemed like they accepted him. It seemed like they welcomed him. It seemed like they got the point. Why is Jesus distressed at this point? Well, he knows what's going to happen. He knows kind of the end of the story. More than that, he knows the prophecy in Psalm 118. You see, in Psalm 118, there's the, the verse that they were quoting about, here comes the king, but there's another verse in the same chapter that relates to Jesus. It's verse 22, where we read, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus knew he was going to be rejected. He knew he was fulfillment of that. The stone which the builders rejected is the cornerstone. Jesus knew they were going to ultimately reject him. Of course, he knew he was going to end up on a cross. Wikipedia, the source of all information, true and otherwise, correctly defines cornerstone in this way. Cor the cornerstone or foundation stone or setting stone is the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. Important sense all other stones will be set in reference to this stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. Think for a moment, if you were in Bible times and you're building some large structure and a particular stone has been shaved or carved, whatever you call it, but it was made to be the cornerstone. And it has the exact right dimensions, it's exactly the right size, it's intended to show where the building's supposed to lay, and it's supposed to provide the right foundation for the whole thing. Imagine somebody's building this building, there, of course there's stones everywhere and wood and everything else, and they come across this cornerstone, and they say, we don't need that. We don't want that stone. And so they send some workers to take the stone and throw it over there in the rubbish pile. Throw it in the pile of stones we don't need. Now, either they just didn't know it was the cornerstone or, 
or they didn't, they rejected it as the cornerstone. It doesn't matter. In either case, they didn't realize this is the stone, this is the most important one. It establishes all of the future of humanity. This is it's the only stone that matters, and it's going to be rejected, and Jesus knew that was going to happen, which points to the second description of Jesus, that he's not just the lion coming as a king, presenting himself as the Messiah king, but he's also claiming to be the Passover lamb. And this part is, when you hear it, even clearer in terms of what Jesus was trying to do. This, of course, was the Passover week. And many of you remember maybe the story of the Passover. To this day, Jewish people will celebrate a Passover meal, a Seder. They've been doing it for thousands of years since the original event of the Passover. But it's important you understand the story of the Passover because I'm suggesting Jesus is presenting himself as the Passover lamb when he comes into Jerusalem here. But I mentioned earlier how Israel and his 12 boys and their families moved to Egypt. They would be there for hundreds of years. They multiplied. They grew into a massive nation. And it was time for them to come home. God raised up a man named Moses and said, lead them out of Egypt because I have a land I'm going to give you. It's called the promised land. And so Moses went to Pharaoh and says, the Lord God says, let, let my people go. And Pharaoh refused to do it. And so God began to send plagues upon the Egyptians to get their attention, caused them to realize that he alone was the true and living God. And time and again, Pharaoh would say, you can go, but then he'd change his mind as soon as he got some relief from the plague. And so one plague after another, but the last plague, that was, it was horrific. The last one was the worst plague of all. Firstborn son in every household would be struck dead by the angel of death. Every household. And understand this, it's every household both in Egypt and where the Jewish people were. The angel of death was passing through the whole area. But God gave the Israelites a remedy. He said, what I want you to do on this evening is at twilight, I want you to find a lamb that has no blemishes at all. It has to be a year old. In other words, a lamb that's not been used for anything else. And it, it needs to be perfect. And I want, it has to be a male, and what I want you to do is shed the blood of that animal at twilight, and then you take the blood from that animal, and you apply some to the top and some to the sides of the house, which, by the way, if you connect the dots, makes a cross. But apply it to the door of your house, and when the angel of death comes through the land, he'll pass over your house. Those living inside will live, and on the night this happens, you'll be set free from slavery. I want to recommend, this is what I think God's wanting to do from, for us. It set us free from slavery through his blood. That if by faith we apply the blood of Jesus to the door of our heart in a sense. We say, I want, to, I want your blood to cover my heart. The one who is going to shed his blood for us will be forgiven of sin. We'll give, be given life eternal. That's what Jesus wanted to give us. Well, on this evening, the Jewish people did what they were asked to do, and the angel of death passed by, and they were set free from their slavery that night. But God said this, I want you every year from now on to remember this event. And so what I want you to do is every year I want you to get a lamb. 
I want you to kill the lamb. And, and he spelled out this thing called a Passover that again is still practiced today. I want you to celebrate this. I want you to remember this passing over. But there's one part of the instructions God gave to the Israelites about this Passover that intersects with our story today. In Exodus 12, beginning in verse 5, we read, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, they must select, each select an animal of the flock according to their father's households, one animal per household. You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. The detail that I haven't mentioned up to this point is that the lamb was supposed to be selected on the 10th day. But they were not allowed to sacrifice it until the 14th day. You say, why? Why the specific thing? Select the animal on the 10th. On the 14th day, you kill it. Why? It was to prove that it was without any blemishes. It was to prove it was perfect. It was, it was to prove it was the right sacrifice. It was an acceptable sacrifice. So for four days, they watched this animal. Now we come to our story. Jesus is coming into the city on a donkey. After he arrived, the next day it says, where did he go? He went into the temple. I'm suggesting he was presenting himself at the temple as the Passover lamb. And if you read the other gospels, you will see that many times in the story that follows, different individuals said about Jesus, I don't see anything wrong with him. There's nothing wrong with him. He hasn't done anything wrong. This theme keeps coming out there. Even the thief on the cross next to him said that. You've done nothing wrong. Why? Because he was the perfect Passover lamb who was shedding his blood for us on that cross. That's what it's about. And Jesus, of course, knew as he was coming into the city that he would indeed be rejected. He knew that he would shed his blood for us. And he knew ultimately this was the thing that would save the world. This would ultimately be the thing that would result in eternal life for us. Because Jesus was both a lion, but he also was the lamb. Now, our application here this morning is really different based on where you are spiritually. I want to suggest here today that some of you still need to put your trust in Jesus as the Passover lamb. You have to put your trust in Jesus to be your savior. Maybe you've never done that before, but this was God's eternal plan to send his son into the world to die in our place and for our sin. He was spotless. He was without sin. He was the son of God and God the son, but he was willing to allow the sins of the world to be charged against himself. He was willing to die in our place and for our sin. He shed his blood for us. And he died and was buried and put in a tomb, but three days later he rose again and it proves God accepted the sacrifice. Jesus laid down his life, shed his blood for us. God said yes. And how do we get then that eternal life, where the angel of death passes us by. How do we receive this? Well, it's through faith. 
God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish like they did in Egypt without the blood, but will have eternal life. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's a matter of putting your trust in Jesus. When Jesus began his ministry, John the Baptist, of course, identified him immediately as the lamb. He said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one that's gonna sacrifice himself for us, but it requires a response on our part. Will I paint the blood on the door of my heart? Will I say yes to Jesus? And most do it through a prayer. I know I've sinned, I need a, a savior. And today I wanna trust Jesus, you to be my savior. I receive you. I welcome you. I don't want to reject you as the people ended up doing in the city of Jerusalem. See, Jesus wept over the city because 40 years after this event, the city was destroyed completely by the Romans, completely destroyed, not one stone upon another. Jesus knew that's what was coming because they were rejecting him. But we have an opportunity to say yes to him. So some of you, it's saying yes to the Passover lamb. The rest of you, if you've already have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to Say yes to him as king. Some of you have not resolved the question whether he has the right to rule over your life. We're told, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Set him apart as the king. That's what Jesus came to do, of course, didn't he? He came to introduce the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a spiritual kingdom where Christ reigns within the hearts of his people. But oftentimes, we're not used to kings in our culture, and so this idea of submitting to a king or obeying a king is a foreign concept to us. But I'll tell you, life is so much better when we acknowledge him, you're the king. And when we do things his way, it's just life is better when we do things his way. He really does know the best way to live. And so if you're a believer here today, I encourage you to acknowledge him as king. Next week, Lord willing, we'll continue the story as we move our way up to the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, and thank you that he was willing to come into the city as both a lion, as the king, with the scepter, as well as a lamb, willing to sacrifice himself for the sin of the world. We're grateful for that, O oh Lord, and we really want to acknowledge you for who you are. We really want to be ones who see you clearly for who you are and embrace you as both a savior, but also a Lord, a king. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.